0: What does it mean to wave the flag? Aaron Redica will be here to talk about the book A Flag Worth Dying For, The Power and Politics of National Symbols.
1: In general, in the book, there's a fun fact vibe where when you see the fun fact coming, you kind of want to run the other way.
0: Why return to the Rockaways after 30 years? Novelist Jill Eisenstadt will be here to talk about her latest novel, Swell.
2: I never stopped writing. It was a kind of a confluence of events. One is that I forbid myself from writing any more outer borough fiction.
0: Alexander Alter and Concepcion de Leon will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, my colleagues and I will talk about what we're reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Aaron Redica joins us now to talk about his review of a new book called A Flag Worth Dying For, The Power and Politics of National Symbols by Tim Marshall, who also wrote a book called Prisoners of Geography, a former New York Times bestseller. Aaron, thanks for being here. Thank you. Aaron, let's talk a little bit about your day job because you are my colleague here at the New York Times, but in a different section, a separate section, the opinion section. What do you do up there on the 13th floor?
1: I mostly work on our political coverage, but also a lot of sort of sociologically oriented stuff, so inequality, education, things like that.
0: So are you commissioning outside writers to write op-eds, to write opinion pieces on these subjects?
1: Lots of that, and I also have some contributing writers that I work with every week, like Tom Edsel, um, and then uh, a bunch of people I work with more irregularly, like Pete Weiner and Seth Stevens, Davidovich, Molly Worthen, and a whole crew of people.
0: Let's talk a little bit about this book, um, which you reviewed for us. Um, What is Marshall trying to do in A Flag Worth Dying For? What's the book about?
1: He's trying to use the world of flags to talk about the world as it actually is, which is a mixed blessing because he's trying to tell you lots of cool things about flags which are in fact quite interesting. But Mm -hmm. he also knows a tremendous amount about the world after 25 years of covering it. And so it's a, it's definitely in the mixed bag category and a little scattershot as a result.
0: Well, that's why we have you in here talking about it as opposed to Mr. Marshall. Um, but yeah, so he was the diplomatic editor of Sky News and he worked for the BBC and has reported from 40 countries. But he has got an argument in here, right, about sort of the role that flags play as as symbols for their countries?
1: I'm not sure there is an argument totally. I mean, he would probably say there was, but it's, it's – If there is one, it's that the created meaning of the flags very quickly takes on a degree of power because of the nationalism and the cultural chauvinism that it ties into. It's very tribal. It's very tribal, right. And in fact, one of the things that he does really nicely is basically show that uh, the famous line from uh, Tassin Bashir, an Egyptian diplomat who was talking about the Middle East, but it could be... Anywhere he says, you know, all these nations are essentially tribes with flags, right? And it's a flag. So if there's an argument, it's that the flag is an attempt to take the tribe and make a nation. And, of course, that's very complicated. So you're finding all kinds of historical emblems of violence on these flags. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the fun things about the book, too, is there are all kinds of interesting little tidbits, and it's one of these weird books where to actually sit down and read the whole thing, you, you, you very few people are going to do that. <laughs> you know, there's tons of little interesting side notes, but like conceptually, the book is kind of odd. Like at one point, he has, and I see where he's going with this, but he has Turkey and Iran and Israel all in the chapter about the colors of Arabia. In some sense, I guess that makes sense geographically. But getting back to the cultural and national ideas behind those three places, you can be sure that the Turks, the Israelis, and the Persians who are the Iranians would hardly want to be subsumed into... idea of Arabia.
0: You know, it's funny because there's this fun flag facts sheet that that came with the review copy of the book, and one of the facts is that Israel is the only country to use a symbol of Judaism in their national flag, which I actually think is probably not all that surprising (laughs) to most people. Also the
1: least surprising (laughs) Yes, yes.
0: Uh, And another, I just have to read... Can
1: I say something about that? I mean, the the potency of that, right, I was thinking about the book uh, with this crazy thing that happened at the Dyke March in Chicago a few days ago. Right, right, which
0: we we have a story on – can yeah, you just Barry, tell people well, what Barry happened? Weiss,
1: my colleague, actually wrote a really great piece about it. But basically, the official pride parades are on Sundays and this was a Dyke March on Saturday, and which is a longstanding event in Chicago. We have one here in New York as well. But at the rally, I'm not sure exactly how many women, but two or three women who had I think it was uh, three. pride flags. So rainbow flags – but with the Jewish star of David on them. Right. And they were asked uh, not only to unfurl them, but to leave, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty incredible. Um, I guess the ar- argument was that
0: Wait, is it to unfurl them or is it actually to furl, furl them? them? Yeah, it's I think like they ravel have to furl unravel. them up, right? Yes. right to unfurl
1: <laughs> them would be right. They were asked to furl them. Okay. <laughs> nice lost <laughs> positive. Right. Yes. That's so true. Furl your flags and leave. your the flag f- or they could ravel them. But it reminded me of what Marshall was saying, which is the, just how powerful this is, right? Because the argument of the organizers of the march was that that symbol of Jewish pride was, and it is, a symbol of desecration and fear for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how you view this event is how you view that star. Right now you – there's also just a more general argument about how everyone who in – a, in a space where people are supposed to feel free, everyone should feel free to be free however they want to be free, right? But of course that's – Unless that's it unfrees other people. Unless it unfrees other people. Well, that's the argument. Right. And he, he tries really hard to cover the gamut of flags, which again is like a virtue that's also a vice because um, by the end, you know, he uh, – well, I mentioned this in the review, but he gets to the checkered flag of racing, and I was like, okay, I'm right. ready for it to fly. Right, uh, right. But, but, you know, but that's a, – it's a little uh, unfair in the sense that, like, no one is going to just sit down and – like, it's not designed right. for you to sit down and read it in that sense.
0: All right. Here's another fun fact from my fun flag fact sheet. Actually, some of these facts are more interesting than others, and a lot of them just posed additional questions for me. So one of them was that the world's tallest unsupported flagpole resides in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Fine. The flag flying on this pole weighs the same as five baby elephants. Weirdly, the question I then ask is, what about, like, how many grown-up elephants is that? (laughs) Like, is it the same as one grown-up elephant, but it sounds better to say five baby elephants?
1: Uh, that's an excellent question. To I which mean, that's I do where it took me. Answer. <laughs> yeah. I don't
0: expect you to know the answer to that. But um, and then the other fun facts that I noted on here were um, this is an, an odd one, but that some people think the Bosnian flag resembles the cornflakes cereal. That's I'm not sure if that's a fact or an opinion.
1: In general, in the book, there's a fun fact vibe where when you see the fun fact coming, you kind of want to run the other way. But there are in fact lots of fun facts well, tell us that, that. Are not <laughs> that are not in there. Well, I mean this is – I don't know if this qualifies as fun. But something I found really fascinating was the degree to which the religious language in Islam either makes it or doesn't make it onto the flags. So there's a chapter on non-state actors like ISIS but also plenty of others as well. He's very focused on the Middle East I think because of his own reporting experience. ISIS's attempt to win people over with that black flag. And they have inscription on there from the Quran, and then several of the other countries in the Middle East do and then some don't. And it's sort of – it's interesting how that all unravels.
0: All right. Let's get to a very basic um, question, which I'm assuming he addresses, which is what is the origin of the flag? Where do these things come from, this idea of –
1: Okay. So that is a complicated question that he does get into. Um, The short answer is that like many things, it comes in part from the Silk Road. Uh, The idea, uh, I think he would say, originated in China, spread on the Silk Road West. You also need the silk to make a good flag. And of course, Ah. uh, but it's also true that uh, the Western European countries that popularized them to some degree during the Crusades, that's the link. So it's Silk Road, Crusades, modern countries. So that's
0: when they really took off was with the Crusades?
1: Uh, I, I would say so. I don't know whether he would say so, but I would say so. But but part of that, what's interesting about that is that, of course, they were implicated in the Christian-Muslim divide from the mm-hmm. beginning, Right. The crescent on one side, the cross on the other. Um, And when you start looking, as I said before, when you start looking at these Western European flags, you see these fossilized crosses. And the depth of the religion in our society, which is masked to some degree, is there in the flags.
0: Last question. Uh, We did a bunch of fun facts and I won't make you do any more. But (laughs) what was the (laughs) –
1: Fun facts are no – fun.
0: No fun. Um, I thought the cornflake one was fun. The cornflake one is cool. What did you learn from this book? Sort of what was the most interesting thing you learned about flags that you maybe didn't know going in?
1: The thing I re- was most interested in was how religious they are. Mm-hmm. The, that, I mean, of course that's true, but you don't think about it, right? You don't look at the American flag and think of religion. And in fact, some people did want to make the uh, Christianity of the United States more explicit in the flag, um, which mercifully was not done. They
0: very um, well may get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe.
1: But uh, that was certainly the most surprising thing was was the depth of the religious symbolism. But also, you realize going through the book how specifically the flags, whether, whether the nation is a Islamic republic or uh, explicitly unreligious or anti-religious republic like the French, that everywhere the flag is still implicated in that religious symbolism, but not just the symbolism. The whole idea of, uh, as the 2,000-year-old man puts it, you know, let them all go to hell except Cave 7, right, right? (laughs) is is there. But, you know, the inclusiveness and the exclusiveness of specific flags was, you know, very interesting in different points, people trying to make a nation— around a flag, people trying to rally subsections within the nation with a flag. It was all very interesting even as the book itself was like not a picnic to read from page one until the end.
0: Well, I feel like it's very appropriate that you've crossed a kind of internal church-state to divide that we have here at The Times to come <laughs> on our podcast, which is the opinion-slash-newsroom divide we have here within the Times universe. So, Aaron, thank you so much for being here. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: Aaron Redica is a senior staff editor at The New York Times op-ed page, and he reviewed Tim Marshall's new book, A Flag Worth Dying for, The Power, and politics of national
3: symbols.
0: Joining us now is Jill Eisenstadt, the novelist whose most recent book is Swell. Jill, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So this is a book that takes place in Rockaway and not your first time in Rockaway in in fiction terms your book, From Rockaway, came out, was it 30 years ago exactly? Indeed. All right. So let's just start with that first novel for a minute. Are you from Rockaway or do you have you ever lived there? What's your interest in that area of Queens?
2: Yes, I absolutely grew up in Rockaway, although I was born in Brooklyn, but we moved when I was very small, so I have no memory of that. So I'm very attached to Rockaway. My father still lives there, actually a little bit obsessed with it, I feel. What's the origin
0: of the obsession? Like what, what obsesses you about it?
2: To me, it's like the best fictional character. It's My fictional version of Rockaway is a cursed, beautiful, tragic figure, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit different than the real place, but not so different. It's just been through a lot, and a lot of that is understandable. If you're very close to a major airport, at some point there's going to be a plane crash. If you're... A barrier island, there's going to be storms that are epic and shipwrecks and things like that. If you're a neighborhood full of city workers, they're going to have a huge death toll on 9-11. It all makes sense, but at the same time, it does seem like a lot for a very small place. And though it's part of New York City, it seems very much a part from the rest of it.
0: So situated a little bit for those who don't even live in New York, and and of course many people, even those who live in New York, especially if they live in you know other parts of, of gender-fried Brooklyn or in Manhattan, are not familiar with what makes Rockaway special and sort of where it's, where it is geographically.
2: It's a little peninsula that hangs off the end of Queens. One end of it is Breezy Point, which is actually one end of Long Island on a map. The other end would be Montauk. It's much closer to Brooklyn, actually, than Queens, because you just need to cross a bridge from Brooklyn, but it's considered Queens.
0: And who lives there? I mean, is it is it like Brooklyn, have many parts gentrified, and has Rockaway changed a lot from when you were growing up to sort of who lives there now?
2: It actually hasn't changed really at all. There's, like I said, a lot of firefighters, police officers, and other city workers' sanitation. There's also a lot of people who work on Wall Street, I guess, because working downtown, it's the commute is. Not terrible. It's not great. It's very segregated. Then Far Rockaway is sadly um, a lot of projects, a lot of the city has been dumping disenfranchised people in Far Rockaway for decades without Mm -hmm. really any infrastructure for them. The one hospital just closed. So it's a a kind of an odd mix of which is part of what makes it so fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Hurricane Sandy obviously brought a lot of attention to Rockaway and now there's an a bunch of new development that has to do with hipsters discovering that there is an ocean in New York City. Right, But it's kind of still a layer on top of what's already there. And there, are, there have been a lot of problems, but hopefully that will help. You had that one novel come out in 1991 between From Rockaway and this new novel,
0: Swell. Did you start working on this immediately after? How long have you been working on it? Did it sort of start with that 1993 incident?
2: No, not at all, because that was 26 years ago. I mean, that could be possible. But um, I actually wrote a third novel that was set in Manhattan that didn't get published. And at that point, writing novels started to seem like a luxury. I was having kids, and I could write nonfiction for... You know, a lot less time for a lot better pay. And you wrote for <laughs> us for the New York Times. Yes, quite a bit, and other magazines and newspapers. And I wrote a lot of scripts, and I taught writing, but I never stopped writing. It was a kind of a confluence of events. One was that I forbid myself from writing any more Outer Borough fiction for some really? reason. Why? It was very stupid. Now, in retrospect, for some reason, I thought I should be able to move on from that and that I would become a provincial one-note writer if I kept it up. And that was the Manhattan novel? Uh, even though that didn't work, I still didn't get it in my head that I should perhaps return to the Outer Boroughs. I had a teacher in Columbia who used to say, you are a voice of the Outer Boroughs, and I thought that just sounded so ugly at the time. <laughs> Brooklyn wasn't even cool yet, let alone Queens, where I'd already set two novels when he said that. So, But I think he's kind of right. That's my material, and I... Remained obsessed with Rockaway. I kept journals full of anecdotes and historical research, and I I kept up with all the news and gossip and everything. So I, I was sort of trying to write all these other things that weren't really working when I did try to write fiction.
0: And when you did start working on Swell, did it feel right to go
2: back there to be working on a novel that took place in the same area of Queens? It was fantastic because uh, what happened was I was invited to contribute to the anthology Queens Noir. Mm-hmm there's Manhattan Noir and so it's like, like noir. Keishik, no, yes. uh, books yeah exactly and they wanted me to write a Rockaway story and immediately I knew what I wanted to write about and it was one of those rare moments where it just poured out of me even though of course I obsessively rewrote it at 7 million times after that but but that morphed into this? The, yeah, then that's basically the first chapter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, another version of the first chapter. And then I just knew I had to keep going because it was so much fun and so exciting. I had, it was like a log jam was broken.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about Swell and let's start with the Glassmans.
2: So once I wrote Golden Venture, which is the name of the ship that ran aground off of Rockaway and which begins the book, I started thinking about when I decided I wanted to turn this into a novel, I started thinking about all, as I said, all the other tragedies. And around 9-11, I was living in Brooklyn and I had small children, and all these people were panicking and leaving mm-hmm. the city. And I always wondered if they felt safer out west or upstate or wherever they had moved. And nobody would ever move to Rockaway for security, but just the once I thought of that Conceit. It seemed so funny to me mm-hmm. that I felt like I had to do it. So I invented the Glassmans, who lived in Tribeca during 9-11 and then had moved to Rockaway to to be safer, which of course they weren't, aren't.
0: So it's interesting too because you you say that you started it off thinking about those nine eleven families. You know, those sort of people who left the city and what happened to them in the in the long run, in the long term. But but this novel takes place over the course of just one weekend. Why did you decide to keep the time frame so focused?
2: Well, I went through a lot of versions. Mm-hmm. Well, at first, it was going to be four Fridays because at some point I decided that the original owner of the house who comes back and doesn't want to leave and thinks it's still her house, that she was going to keep coming back and keep coming back. And then I decided it would be better novel if she just came and stayed and wouldn't leave Mm -hmm. or just easier to do in some way.
0: It's funny because now I'm thinking about that original question. What did happen to all of those people who left the city post 9-11 in the long run? You know, like, did they end up being happier or, yeah, did they feel safer? But to get back to the Glassmans, you set up their move around a premise that has to do with the husband's father and a conversion to Judaism. So sort
2: of set the stage a little bit about what's going on with them when they move out to the Rockaways and why they do that. Sue Glassman, who's pregnant for the third time, Mm -hmm. is in Tribeca when she discovers that she's got to leave. And her father-in-law, who's been trying to get her to convert to Judaism for her whole marriage, even though he's not particularly religious, basically bribes her by saying he'll buy this house, this beach house, if she will convert. So Mm -hmm. she agrees, but it's more difficult than she thinks it's going to be to follow through.
0: Okay, so they go out to the Rockaways. I'm, I'm not going to make you give away the whole book, but tell us a little bit more about sort of because there's a huge cast of characters,
2: yes, so they go out to the Rockaways and she she becomes very involved in actually studying the to convert. But the house is considered a haunted house is one factor because someone said it has been murdered in there. So she's grappling with that, and she has a teenage daughter and some marital problems. And at which point, the original owner of the house shows up at the door saying that she was tricked into moving and that it's her house and she's staying.
0: So now it is literally haunted.
2: Yes. And in addition to that, she has, has the ashes of her dead relatives in the backyard sprinkled on a tree. So there's other ghosts.
0: When you think about sort of what, you know, you mentioned the impetus was a return to the Rockaways, sort of post-9-11 families. At heart, what is this novel about? I think
2: it's about our relentless quest to feel safe, Mm -hmm. which I think after 9-11 has become kind of an obsession with certain people or especially New Yorkers. And all the various ways we go about trying to to get that feeling, even though most of the time it's illusory. And for different people, different things help them.
0: And there's a kind of paradox of going to feel safe in somewhere that you've said has been sort of beset by all kinds of disasters. Well, I think that's where the comedy
2: comes in. Yes. Would you describe it as a comic novel? I really wasn't describing Mm -hmm. it that way, but my publishers have, which I don't mind. Well, I guess they just describe it as a black comedy. Right. Well, I guess if people tell you that something's funny, it's not the kind of thing that you want to say, turn down, right? Well, yeah, and I wanted it to be funny, but I, I I'm hoping it's also sad and poignant and. Well, All right, we'll read else. us a little bit from the novel. Now, no pressure that it need be a funny part; it can be a poignant part too. Okay, so next door to the Glassmans is a guy named Tim Ray, who has actually seen the old woman nine years prior to this kill her son. So this is just the first section where we see him. So I'm just going to read. Eighty-one years old, Tim Ray is telling his ex-firefighter buddies how at 80 one his neighbor Rose started smoking, found a stash of her dead husband's stale stogies, and blam. Burn holes everywhere, the new neighbors report. All the places she bumped into things lit end first. Tim has spent the last nine years waiting for the brick house to ignite and with it his own wooden cape. What one ember on a sea breeze on a dry night could manage? All heads in the yard nod, concurring, Point is, Tim sleeps better since the murder house sold. He lost a nostril not long ago, surgery, and still he sleeps so, so much better. If the rhododendrons weren't in hysterical white bloom, they could see across the shared beachfront lawn and in through the picture windows of the notorious dining room. There, according to everyone, a Chinese dude shot Rose's son. Too late for Tim to correct them, too risky, too. He'd worked and drunk hard to forget what he'd witnessed, and get Tim rationalized. Who'd even care now? Fifty-nine locals just died on 9/11. Two months later, a plane crash took out five more, along with some 260 on board. The Golden Venture disaster is now so last century that it's only even mentioned in connection with the Impolitary House. Almost nostalgically, Chris D. recalls one corpse-like teen, Asian, who tied a bucket to his waist, thinking it'd help him float. Then the conversation swings back to Tim and his new neighbors, the Glassmans. They're perfect, scratch that. Compared to Rose, not to mention his own skimpy clan, they're as ideal as possible. A mom and a dad, a grumpy stick figure Gramps, two red-haired daughters, and a third kid on the way. If they hadn't been escapees from an apartment near Ground Zero, Tim would have wondered what they were even doing here in Rockaway.
0: Excellent. That was Jill Eisenstadt reading a suitably dark part of the darkly comic novel. Jill, thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me. Jill Eisenstadt's new book again is Swell. I return to Rockaway after her 1987 novel From Rockaway. Joining us now to talk about what's going on in the publishing world, we have our usual Alexandra Alter, and also introducing Concepcion de Leon and her debut on the podcast, who has written a story this week about Sarah Jessica Parker. Welcome to the podcast Concepcion, and hi Alexandra. Hi, Thanks happy to be us. here. All right, what is Sarah J. Parker up to? I feel like calling her SJP, um, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go with the more formal Sarah Jessica Parker. So she has
4: just announced her first pick for her imprint. It's a novel, tentatively titled "A Place for Us," and it's by an Indian American author. And it sounds really exciting. She talked a lot about being influenced and being inspired by Anthony Mara's book, "A Constellation of Vital Phenomena," and so it sounds like she. She's interested in really global voices, in stories that she feels need more light. And she also sort of talked about the political climate and how that influenced her decision. So it was,
0: it was pretty interesting. So her imprint is a part of Crown, right? Hogarth. Hogarth. Which I guess is a part, is of, part, Crown. Of, part yeah. of Crown. part of Crown. Yes, they all, they all eventually on the same go family. up <laughs> until, you know, they're part of one of the big five. And right. Some, which is part of Penguin Random House yes. in this case. When is this new book coming out? It's tentatively scheduled for 2019. Alexandra, can you tell us a little bit about the sort of the history of celebrity imprints and how well they do? Yeah,
4: it's an interesting
5: phenomenon that I feel like has been heating up in recent years. I mean, think of a celebrity now and they probably have an imprint. I mean, (laughs) Derek Jeter has an imprint at Simon & Schuster. Lena Dunham has an imprint at Random House. Gwyneth Paltrow has her Goop imprint, Goop Press, which grew out of her lifestyle website, which is kind of its own franchise now. Oprah Winfrey started one, of course. She's kind of like the heavy hitter here. Publishers are always looking for any kind of marketing that's built in, any kind of star power. I mean, they've tried everything from YouTube stars to, you know, people with a huge social media following to, you know, actors and actresses. You know, it's interesting. I don't know how involved all of them are. I think one of the interesting things about your story, Concepcion, is that Sarah Jessica Parker is a huge book nerd. I mean— there are paparazzi photos that publishers will try to parse. Like what galley does she have in her bag? You know? Yeah, and she's, she's
0: like she has a book club she's and a
5: she's a serious been... reader. And yeah, I think as you wrote about, you know, the the imprint grew out of her book club and her getting to know Molly Stern, who's a who's a fantastic editor and publisher at Hogarth. And so she I think is committed to literary fiction, whereas I think a lot of the other Celebrity imprints are lifestyle-driven. I think Lena Dunham is also doing, you know, both fiction and nonfiction. She's a big but reader she, She's too. a huge reader and a writer. And she's a prolific book blurber yeah. also. Yes, and a very avid blurber. But, yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily give you the commercial bump that you would think always, you know. I think Oprah Winfrey's memoir is going to be a huge seller, but I don't know that the books that she acquires from other people, even if she puts kind of all of her backing in it, it has her stamp of approval. I don't know that, the, that everybody who loves Oprah is going to buy and read a book that just because she publishes it.
0: So when you talk to Sarah Jessica Parker Concepcion, what are her ambitions for her own imprint? Did she talk about what she's trying to do and other kinds of books that she's interested in? She sort of talked
4: about what I mentioned earlier. So she said she's really interested in voices from far away. Mm-hmm. She's really interested in books set in other countries and about other cultures. I also thought that it was very interesting that she is really, really involved in reading all of the manuscripts that come in. So she isn't hands-off about it at all. She reads every single one unless, you know, from the very beginning they decide that it's it's not something she even needs to look at. But for the most part, she's been reading everything. And it's, it's really not about extending her brand for her. It really is about the writers and about nourishing, particularly debut novelists. She seems really interested in finding new writers, not to say that she is close to, you know, publishing already established writers, but she does seem really interested in in sort of finding new voices.
0: It's interesting because for regular publishing folk, of course, getting your own imprint as an editor is like yeah, the golden ring. Made it. And you know, when you have an imprint that's that's named after you. That's sort of it. And now they have to compete with the celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> imagine
5: you're Nan Talese and you publish Margaret Atwood and Ian McEwen. And then all of a sudden Gwyneth Paltrow comes in. or One of my favorite new celebrity imprints, just because of the weirdness factor, is Michael Mann, the, mm,
2: uh, the movie, movie director, <laughs> the, movie like ter- the-, the
5: writer-director. He started his book. Or his books really long, too? Poly- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know that any of them have come out yet. But one of the projects that's in the pipeline is a prequel novel to his 1995 movie, Heat. So he's for those kind of who taking, didn't get enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, like,
0: whatever, three and a
5: half hours. Yes, go back and read the prequel. So it is interesting that, you know, celebrities, they have all the status in the world, but it's not enough to have like a perfume line. You have to have your own book line now.
0: They're just like us. <laughs> yes, they, they want are. to be just like us. <laughs> Books are the new accessory. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Concepcion, Alexander thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The New York Times Book Review Posse joins us now with what we're reading this week. We've got Pearl Sagel, John Williams, and Greg Coles here. Hi, guys. Hey, Pam. hey, Pamela. hey,
3: Pamela. All right. Let's start with Pearl. What have you got there? I'm about halfway through Eric Kandel's book, The Age of Insight, and I am in love with this book. I mean, obviously, it's, it's brilliant. It came out a few years ago. Kandel won a Nobel Prize for studying how memory is stored in the brain. And this book is his intellectual history of Vienna around 1900, when the city was sort of like seething with ideas. There was Freud, there was Klimt, there was Schiele, there was Schnitzler, and he sort of looks at all of these writers and scientists and sort of just tries to say like, what kinds of questions were they asking and were they in conversation with each other? And he has this idea that I think is really interesting. And that, so science is always looking for like a unified idea of knowledge, right? So like can we put all of these different things together and figure out how the universe works? Can we do that with art also? Like is there a way that we can look at artists participating in this tradition? And I mean I'm making it sound kind of heavy going, but it is we so We think
0: of like the key to all mysteries.
3: It's <laughs> true, but it's it's like the prose is just so lucid and delightful and he is a huge art lover and it's kind of like I mean, there are these, like, incredible people in the world, like Kandel, you can think of, like, Oliver Sacks, you know, like, these people that just move between science and art in this way that's so exciting. And, yeah, I mean, if you're somebody, you, if you're e. somebody, Wilson if you love science and you haven't bit. read about art, or if you love art and you haven't read about science, this book is for you. It's just, I'm having such a good time with it, and you just... You know, it, it sort of makes you seethe with ideas. And
6: too. what's the answer? Is there a unified theory? Of course, of, art? of course. Yeah. I mean, the beautiful thing. Well, <laughs> so is going to be: Are there
3: pictures? <laughs> um, <laughs> and their pictures are beautiful. But like, but it's a really beautiful way. Of like, what do what do artists? know about psychology? What do they know about the way the eye moves? And what does that tell us about the way that information is stored? And he does this, which I think this is really important, without making it seem reductive. Like, it's not a utilitarian idea of art, that art now exists to make the brain comprehensible. It well, just enhances the mystery. And I when think. you
6: say, what do artists know about this? Is it more, what do they intuit about this? What can we learn about these things from the way that artists... Both. Uh, yeah.
3: Both, because there's also a huge tradition of, of artists that were anatomists. Look at da Vinci. Look yeah, Look at that yeah, sure. knew so much about the human body <laughs> or knew so much about psychology or knew so much. So, but that's a really good question. And I'm still like going through this, but I think that the nice, the really exciting thing to me about this book is that it isn't a book that has potted answers. You know, it's not like I'm going to demonstrate to you why Sheila is this incredible psychologist. It's sort of like he's looking at the painting with you in really wonderful ways. And what is the name again? The title is The Age of Insight. The Quest to Understand the Unconscious in Art, Mind, and Brain. What sort of prompted you to pick this up? Well, I'd poked around in it a little bit over the years and... I mean, I think I, I, I just – I don't know how you guys uh, pick your next book, but I I keep this very, like, tottering stack of books on my bedside table, which is sort of like, borrow <laughs> That's <laughs> my Do you know what I mean? It's a good like thing, which is just like – and it's all the books that I want to get yes. to. But, like, I mean, given my druthers, I will just reread that Samantha Irby <laughs> comic <laughs> essay book again, which I did this week. But so it's this, this list kind of just – I mean, this, this uh, stack kind of just – and it looks a, at me every now and then and just is like, "How about how about something a little bit more n- nourishing?" That nutritious. book has looked at
7: me now and then over the years. I've had it for the last few years Don't on my hesitate, shelf, John, and it's, it's. But there are two tottering piles. Yeah. Piles. There's the pile that's like really doable. Yeah. The sort of mid-length novel pile, and then there's the this pile. I mean, the book is big. It's serious. It is lucid, but it's it's going to take some time.
0: So you actually do have two two piles?
7: Well, not two literal piles, no, but just in my brain. Yeah. This was <laughs> on my desk, though, for a while, uh, on a literal pile of four or five Please, books. Because, because I, really I can also have
0: that Please. pile next to my, yeah. my bedside. I mean, yeah. the, it's the multiple piles. Pile. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I have like... <laughs> I'm, yeah, no, it's, this is too much detail, but there are <laughs> bookshelves <laughs> and there are piles <laughs> in, in front of the bookshelves. And there's ones that are actually on the edge of the bed, mm. which is a, like a Japanese platform bed. So it has like a very – it's like one huge nightstand that surrounds my oh, wow. bed. Mm-hmm. And
7: yes. the ones that have made it to that level, like the ones that are really in close contention?
6: Yeah, those are the, yeah. those are the really intrusive They're ones. They're going yeah, the to be one I, I fear will all topple over. <laughs>
7: <laughs> all right, um, what has
0: come off of uh, your – Well, I I want to say
7: one quick thing because Greg um, asked for the title again, and I've been meaning to say this on the podcast because we do get letters sometimes from readers and listeners. And we go through these fairly quickly sometimes, but on the web every week we put up an article with the podcast link, and on that article page we list all the books that we've talked about on what we're reading. So if you don't catch something, you can go to nytimes.com slash books, find the podcast article and see all of the books that we've discussed.
0: I love that PSA, John, because yeah, I am one of the know. people that gets
3: all of those emails. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't understand. Is it with a C or a but K? Yes, and I like and that I, it, I like that it follows my bit when I'm in, in my garbled enthusiasm for things. <laughs> I never mention authors. I just
7: remember to mention my feelings. And All we know is that Parla's excited. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> What's she excited about? It's
0: Kandel with a K. It's in Kandel, case you're
7: K-A-N-D-E-L. So I'm still making my way through Haldor Laxness's Under the Glacier, which I mentioned last week, and I'm really enjoying it, but I left it at the office over the weekend, which, was a little setback. Oh, that's so
0: upsetting. So
7: it was, yeah, it was briefly. And then I, but then for some reason over the weekend, the name Tom Drury popped up. That's D-R-U-R-Y, again, on my radar. And his first novel called The End of Vandalism is one of my all-time favorite books. It's a good title. It's incredible. It's so funny. It's very weird. It's very Coen Brothers-y. I know that you're a fan of them. Yeah,
0: I was going to say that. You you got me with that one. (laughs) Yes.
7: Just like weird Midwestern, off-kilter, both funny and moving. And so I picked up a novel of his I hadn't read before from one of those tottering piles called The Driftless Area from 2006. And this is also set in the Midwest. It's about a young guy who is a bartender and kind of at loose ends and he meets this mysterious woman. She saves him one day when he falls into this frozen lake. And it's about what happens to him because he, he's hitchhiking one day and he has this run in with someone who's stolen some money and I won't give any way, anything else away but basically uh, it's a novel in which he could be in, in big trouble and not so nice people are looking for him and so it's, it actually turns into kind of a magical realist fable in some ways because this woman is it's hard to tell whether she's actually real or not but it's just full of really funny cryptic dialogue between characters it's a more minor novel than the end of vandalism but I would definitely recommend it if, if what I'm describing sounds like it's up your alley at all Greg, what about you?
6: Well, I'm reading a book that is out of print, long out of print, and so I don't know how helpful it will be for listeners to have me slow down and tell you what it is, but I will. It is a, a family memoir called The Hyphenated Family. It was published in 1960. It's by a guy named Herman Hagedorn. That's Herman with two N's, and uh, Hagedorn, like the writer Jessica Hagedorn. In um, relation? I don't know, actually, if it's any relation. The the connection only just occurs to me, Uh, so so (laughs) I I haven't looked that up. The the subtitle of this book is An American Saga, and it's a look at—he is second or even third generation um, German-American. I I guess his parents came to America uh, from Germany, but with their parents. So he's kind of second and third generation American citizen. Uh, they came from Germany in this wave of German immigrants uh, in the 1840s and 1850s, when there was a lot of social upheaval in throughout Europe and and the what was then like the Habsburg Empire. And it is kind of your classic immigrants tale. The um, the whole idea of the hyphenated family. Of course, it's the same W. E. B. Du Bois, the the double consciousness. Although as Germans, as as white-skinned new Americans, they, of course, assimilate much more quickly than what Du Bois is talking about with, with double consciousness. But it gets at these same questions. It's a very resonant book today with these questions of assimilation and appropriation, kind of what it means to be an American. This whole idea of a hyphenated American is an idea that Teddy Roosevelt really brought to the fore. And Herman Hagedorn was a friend and confidant of Teddy Roosevelt. Um, in fact, he, he spent much of his career as kind of a com- communications advisor to T.R. They wrote some some biographies of him. Uh, he also wrote a biography of Albert Schweitzer. So he had this kind of career as a nonfiction writer. This book is his first and, and I think only memoir. He wrote it when he was a- almost 80, um, looking back. And it's it's this charming look at his family, um, but also at what it is to be an American and with kind of divided loyalties, and especially to be a German in the early part of the 20th century in America, um, as we were headed to two massive wars against the Germans.
7: How did it cross your path?
6: My mother's family was also part of that wave of German immigrants in the 1840s and 1850s. And so my uncle, my grandfather's brother, Recommended this book to me 20 years ago or something. I, I bought it online. It's a, actually a review copy. It's kind of fun to see a review copy from 1960. <laughs> it's it was published by Macmillan. It's got the. It's much author's nicer than review copies today. It. Yeah, it's it's a hardcover. Well, it's a finished book. It, it right, just, but was, but it's got a little slip in it that says, you know, <laughs> pre- presented to you for a review. Please send us a copy when it. Can, <laughs> you know. So, uh, the Macmillan, here huh? is your <laughs> here is your review. So it, it is a book that I read at the time twenty years ago, but with all of the recent discussion uh, it it feels so relevant again that i re- I saw it on my shelf and I, I pulled it down and That's I just great. got sucked right into it i'm I'm close to the end now and he he talks also about privilege he his family really struggled when they came here, but then his father went back to Germany and really made it as a big cotton trader and made a lot of money. And Herman Hagedorn, the author, feels guilty about that, feels mm-hmm. like I'm, I have this edge up that other people don't have. He went to Harvard, and one of his professors there says, you don't need to deny yourself that privilege. You just need, you know, if somebody opens the door for you, step through. Just make sure you hold it open for someone else. Mm-hmm. And so it's this idea of kind of what you do with the privilege that you're handed. So, you know, it's it's a book that still deals with a lot of things going on. Pamela, what are you reading?
0: I am reading Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White. This is my
3: favorite book. Okay. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't think every other
0: book we mentioned. I'm serious. Wait, what? Okay, this the only amazing. thing I'm going to say before you start talking is
3: not to reveal anything. <laughs> Don't reveal
0: anything because I always am in, you know, I always reveal okay. read things after okay. everyone you're has read, read them. you read this, then
3: after this you're going to read The Moonstone, and then you're going, oh, I've got a whole reading diet for you for the rest <laughs> of the <summer>. you in <laughs> my right.
6: Well, perfect because you were just reading about Dickens. Well, yes,
0: exactly. And one of his daughters married Wilkie Collins's brother, so there was that. And then, of course, they worked together and were good friends. And since we're talking about the spelling of names and confusing names <laughs> and getting them straight, I'm going to admit something really embarrassing, which is that for a very long time, I really hope that someone says, me too, um, or (laughs) instead of, you know, saying like, really, how could you have made that mistake? But for a long time, I conflated Wilkie Collins with Wendell Wilkie, who, (laughs) I
2: know, I know. Well, in my
0: head, because, you know, and also there's a plaque to Wendell Wilkie right outside the New York Public Library. And it was one of those plaques that you walk by a million times, but I never stopped Mm -hmm. to Read it. Wendell Wilkie, of course, was the nineteen forty Republican uh candidate for president. And so really nothing at all like Wilkie Collins. Like not even the same. <laughs> but that era. doesn't seem like
7: a crazy conflation to me. Thank I you, can John. See that. I mean, I haven't you me didn't make too. that mistake but yeah. you, you you
0: can understand people Absolutely, who yeah. would Okay, good. Um I want so I want at least one listener to send me an email that's like, "You know what? I still <laughs> can't get both them. of these." Yeah, those are content. two people. <laughs> yeah. Who <laughs> just, you know, no. like, "How did he manage to do all of that in <laughs> oh, the period of a century?" <laughs> Such a good book. Okay, I'm chucking note. Age of Insight.
3: I'm just going to reread The Woman in White now. How I was far like, th- can we get so back to good. the novel? Yeah, how far um, into it are you?
0: So I it's a page turner, and so it's very sad that I'm only on page seventy nine, um, which is you know more of a reflection of yeah. My... But when it
3: starts like when it starts really cooking, you're not going to get anything done. Yeah, no, I already feel that are way. Children to raise themselves, <laughs> like it's just good luck. It's, it's like so things cool.
0: happen in the span of one page yeah, where you're really, like, okay but at the beginning is a a drawing master and one of his students he falls in love with her and then like the next page the love is discovered and you're like wait what like it just it really moves along
3: like he just understands how to keep you reading in a way that's just oh you're not going to eat you're not going to do anything I'm so (laughs) yeah, I'm very happy
0: and it's funny because I've been wanting to read it and I went to a local bookstore uh, over the weekend and I was like this is all that I want I had had never been to this store before and it's about 20 minutes away from where I live and I walked in and I was like, oh, it's a really like kind of small local bookstore. They're not going to have it maybe. And I didn't think to call before. And and yet I walked over to a wall and like, and there it was, yeah. you know, and it was phased out and there was one copy. I stand. saw your like, mission
7: accomplished photo online. I <laughs> yes. just feel the joy through the Yes, Yes, so it's been
0: making me very happy. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.